0: Digital Four Ten proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts Don Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge.
1: Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast, and we are back for another Monday night. Joining us, as always, well, for the most part, Jeff Kopsetta and Henry Sledge, gentlemen. How are you all doing tonight?
2: Doing good. How's everybody?
1: Doing good. Doing good. How are you, Jeff?
2: I mean, really? As always, kind of, sort of, I'm here. <laughs> well, Thanks, man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, we're always about sticking the jabs here and there. What do you guys think of the new theme song? You like that?
2: Nope. Perfect. I miss the old one.
1: Yeah, me too. But, you know, just ain't worth it.
0: I, I miss the old one, too, man. Let's, since you got dinged on the copyright, let's like... I don't know, get some social distortion or something on <laughs> Yeah, because
1: there's no copyright on the CD that came out in 1994. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the song is probably older than our guest. But speaking of our guest, Henry, why don't you introduce our guest for tonight, sir?
0: Yeah, so tonight we're really happy to have uh, someone that I'm proud to say I've become friends with over the last year, Mr. Garrett Shatrowski. Uh, Garrett is a United States Marine Corps Reserve officer, he, for the last five years, has been researching and working on a biography of someone that's near and dear to my heart that is Captain Andrew Ackack Haldane. So, uh, Garrett, welcome to What's a Scuttlebutt, man.
3: Thank you, Henry. Appreciate it. I uh, really appreciate you guys having me on tonight. Excited to talk to you all. A big fan of the podcast. So, uh, again, thank you and
1: looking forward to it. Oh, we're thrilled yeah. to have you on. Absolutely.
0: So, Garrett, did you say that your specialty in the Marine Corps is logistics. Did I hear that right, Saturday?
3: Yeah, I'm part of a logistics uh, battalion, uh, okay. actually, regiment. Okay. And you've
0: been in, how long have you been in the Corps?
3: Uh, coming up on three years now. Uh, so I commissioned in November of 2020, uh, yeah. you know, direct path. I, uh, the son of a Marine, and kind of wanted to go in, in college. And, you know, that was kind of during the sequester cuts of 2013. As Don had laid out, I was actually born in 1994, so I am <laughs> just as old enough for, for the copyright. So uh, I decided to, you know, go into business and did that, but it was an itch I couldn't scratch and came back through the OCC program uh, in the fall of 2020, uh, earned my commitment, went to the basic school, went to MOS school, and then transitioned into the reserves.
0: Well, it's, it's um you know, since we focus on the on the world war ii stuff let's just jump right in man tell me and i know because you and i've gotten to know each other but tell our listeners what led you to become interested in akak
3: no absolutely uh I, i'm from massachusetts born and raised here i was a three sport varsity captain in high school uh and had taken some military history classes and with the old breed was recommended to me by a teacher uh, and while reading that obviously such a fantastic book uh, for anybody, regardless of your in-depth knowledge of World War II, as I think we all know. Uh, but your father had so eloquently talked about Captain Haldane, and in the basis of that book, there's a footnote that had highlighted how Andy was um known for a cup that was given at Bowdoin every single year. And I just remember being like a senior in high school and applying to colleges and being like, wow, Bowdoin College is a really, you know, elite institution. And the fact that he still ended up there, you know, 70 years later was kind of stuck out to me. Um, fast forward about seven years later, I had rewatched the Pacific. And whenever I get interested in something, I want to go pull a book about it. And I spent about an hour and a half trying to find something on Andrew Haldane. And I kept on you know, referred back to with the old breed or Islands of the Damned, uh, periodicals that are in the Marine Corps Gazette. And I was just like very surprised that there hadn't been something that was comprehensive of his life. Uh, and that's where I was sort of like I think that needs to be fixed. I don't know why I thought I could be the one to do it, but <laughs> I I'd, uh, had found uh, an article uh, about Steve, from Stephen Moore Andy's nephew, I, you know that you know, uh, right. and, uh, to him and you know. Thankfully, I always joke. I swear, Andy's mother knew someone was going to write something because uh, that lady had kept everything of Andrews, uh, his childhood scrapbooks, high school and college scrapbooks, every letter, uh, medals, uh, notes that he had written home while at college. And they were very well-preserved, and no one had seen them uh, until Stephen had given them to me. So that's where we got
1: started at. Leave it to a Marine in the logistics (laughs) department who said, you know what? There's nothing here. I'll find it and put it together. I'll track it down, and we'll just get it done.
3: Beans, bullets, and Band-Aids, right?
1: (laughs) Well, and, and that's a good start. Let's, you know, before you get to the unreleased previously letters, where did you, after you got this wild hair, this bug, this crazy idea. Hey, and w- and by the way, it's surprising. You know, it's surprising, especially after the production of the Pacific that somebody, through that production, didn't go out. And usually, they'll bring in an author or two to kind of put out some coinciding books to raise some interest. So it's kind of even sure. more peculiar that even after that production's been out for so long, that even a guy like you who wasn't looking for it couldn't find anything.
3: I, I, I 100% concur, and I think obviously, you know, Band of Brothers drove such interest into numerous individuals from that series who then went on to write their own books and that's great and I think the major difference is Andy died Yeah, and, and one of those gentlemen yeah. did um, and unfortunately if it wasn't for the Pacific which I think they did a really good job and obviously you know with the old breed I think Andy would have been lost to history uh, and that would have been a serious shame
1: Mm-hmm. one so, of the
0: things oh,
3: I'm sorry go, no, ahead. go ahead
0: you know Garrett when we were I think it was when we were on that that Zoom show that really kind of I don't know if you were on that or not, but Bruce McKenna was on there. Scott Gibson, of course, um, Leighton, everybody. Like September a year ago is kind of when I first got back into the community. And Stephen Moore came on. And that was pretty cool, you know, for me to meet Ack-Ack's nephew. Um but one of the the cool thing about Captain Haldane, I remember from hearing from Stephen Moore was that he really and corroborate this, or correct me, whichever, he really was not a fantastic student. He was a good student. He did okay, but he was not wow. just like straight A's, you know, inter-baccalaureate. He was a good, solid student, but he had that charisma. He had that ability to make people feel special. People liked him. Obviously, he was a great athlete. What Am I on the beam there by saying that he he got it done as a student, but he was not fantastic.
3: I, I think that's honestly being a little bit nice. Uh, you know, the captain might look down at me now and you'd probably laugh He'd probably say it to yourself. Um, but, yes, it was very much And I think there's a unique part of my book that I want to showcase is that we learn about Andy Haldane, whether it's, you know, in Guadalcanal or on Walt's Ridge or, you know, in Durham, Peleliu but we really don't learn a lot about what made Andy Haldane into that great officer. And I think you have to look at Bowdoin you have to look at that grit that took a first generation American of immigrant parents who didn't make it past grade school and struggled academically, but went to two prep schools and took them two and a half years to get accepted to Bowdoin. Uh, And then went there and did struggle there, but never gave up. He was a captain of the football and baseball team and he worked in the kitchen. And you try to think about, man, like you are the, the star athlete, you're the stud of the school and, you know, you're waiting tables after practice, uh, on your fellow peers, no less.
1: And furthermore, Uh, where do you get the time? I,
3: I have no idea. Um, but he did struggle there and, you know, he turned it around. I think a great example of that is his senior year. They had actually given him $140, $140 scholarship, which sounds like, you know, minuscule comparative today for college but uh, to forgive the loans that he had taken because he had improved his grade so much. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, he did struggle there. Uh, but I think that also what makes Andy a, such an easy guy to get along with. And why enlisted Marines who were 17 or 18 years old, who you know, probably dropped out of high school themselves, didn't feel like he was this, you know, overbearing figure and looking down upon him.
0: I know that if you go by what my, my dad wrote about him and I love the, the, scene of that you know they're coming back from a training exercise on pavuvu it's late afternoon it turns into a thunderstorm and you know it's gloomy twilight sitting in and they're just they're just humping up the trail you know trying to get back to camp on pavuvu Mm -hmm. and akak's just walking along the line you know talking to different people and you know and, and sledge said i felt this warm glow inside when he stopped and started talking to me because he was he he made me feel like something other than a caged animal being trained to fight like I was a human being and he actually gave a
3: damn empathy and you know I, anybody anybody's been in the service or you guys all very well versed in military leaders in the history of the military even outside of the second world war I think that's a, a characteristic that anybody describes someone even outside of the military a, a CEO a politician yeah. someone to have, to have empathy um and I think it was a great great example and you know they're on Peleliu on on, on D-Day uh and he's having Jim Anderson as runner you know, and Jim Anderson writes, Andy asked me if I could go over and, you know, link up with the 7th Marines. You know, he bolts flying, you're on the beach of Peleliu, and Andy's, you know, not ordering coming to do something. He just says, hey, can you go do that for me? Like, that's the type of guy I think he is, calm, cool, and collected at all times and treated people with respect, um, you know, which is kind of hard to find.
1: And sometimes you know. in that situation, it may be easier for someone to do something if they feel like they're doing someone else a favor. Yeah. You know, or they have a choice, even though truthfully they didn't. But you know, sometimes it might put a little more uh, motivation in their step.
3: For sure, but the, you know, to have the the mental capacity and uh, the bearing to do that in those situations, it's always easier in garrison. It's always easier when you're in a classroom. Yep. But to do that when the bullets are actually flying, I, I think it's just remarkable, and it just shows you know who he was.
1: What year did he ship off the boot camp?
3: He left, uh, so he graduated about in the class of forty-one. Uh, that summer, he had stayed up uh, in the Bowdoin area, and he actually enlisted in the Marine Corps on May 6th. So back then, like they enlisted like before going to Officer Candidate School. They got a really cool photo with him and uh, Sam Brown belt on with a PFC Chevron, which I still have no idea like how that worked, how they got uniforms or anything. But he uh, was the assistant coach at Bowdoin for football that fall before being called uh, in the end of October to go to Officer Candidate School. So he was at OCS when Pearl Harbor happened. Uh, And they were actually in the barracks uh, playing poker on Sunday Liberty when it came over the um, radio of what had happened.
1: But their training got fast-tracked real quick.
3: Yeah. They went from, I believe, an early March graduation date to the January 31st graduation date. And then as all officers still today, checked out and went across the street and went to the basic school.
1: You know, fast forward about 79 years, Jeff kind of experienced something in his boot camp, right, Jeff? A Little bit,
2: uh, yeah. Week 10 of my 16 week one station unit training, September 11th, changed everything. I, I mean, I, you can't get a more, I guess, probably a, a
3: comparative example, um, to America being attacked without having any sort of probably had more of an inclination in Pearl Harbor than we did in 9 11, yeah. Um, so yeah, that must have been quite the experience. What would the drones have to say to you guys? <laughs>
2: Uh, that we uh, had already qualified with our rifles, and because we were uh, cav scouts and, and a combat arms MOS, uh, they could pull us at any time. So lace up your boots tight, gentlemen. Get the blood uh, flowing. What's that? I'll get the blood flowing. <laughs> yeah, that was that was that was something. Uh, yeah. If you don't mind, I'd like to cut Please. in here because I, I man, I've got a thought that's just rolling around in my head here that uh, garrett uh, maybe you can help me out so i think we all agree here that that how well a job scott gibson did whether we know a whole lot about ACAC or or not uh it was just such an incredible um portrayal of one of those officers that doesn't need to wear rank immediately earns that respect from people my but my thought is uh you're you were to to learn about this guy and, and which is what prompted you to do this project. there wasn't a whole lot out there. I'm curious now, what did the advisors, what did Scott Gibson draw off of to put those pieces together? You know, you can't just read three or four books about this guy and really become, you know, like I think about this recent biopic about Elvis where, you know, Austin Butler sits there and watches every Elvis movie and every you know recorded mm-hmm. interview, and he sits in Graceland for a while. He became him. And Scott Gibson is is all he's really drawing off of is Henry's father's book and a little couple excerpts from the Marine Gazette. Like that's unbelievable to me.
3: He, yeah, he. So uh, I, I think there's there's two prongs to that. Is one Scott did a fantastic job playing Andy Haldane, and I think him bringing him back to life, just like created so much more momentum of understanding ACAC was outside of the basic Marine Corps or World War II historians. And I even think before the Pacific, you had to be a pretty well-versed historian outside of reading the Old Breed to really understand Andy Haldane. Because, I, again, I believe and Scott really brought him back to life. Two, they had actually did have a lot of letters that Andy had written back and forth between the dean of students at Bowdoin and the president of Bowdoin that are in his file that uh, um, HBO had used. Funny anecdote on that, the president of HBO now, but at that time he was a producer of the show, was Carrie Anthals. He was Bowdoin class of 84. So there was a connection to Bowdoin specifically from the production team. So they did have that information. Andy's file at Bowdoin is pretty comprehensive. Uh, and there was a lot of information in there that they pulled from. One of the mistakes they did talk about, and I think uh, Steve has highlighted it, uh, Henry, is when he sits next to Sledge and he said, you know, our, our uh, ancestors could have possibly fought against each other uh, in the civil war Andy's parents didn't come here until 1913. So, uh, you know, that wouldn't have happened, but that was like a minor up on the show of them taking maybe a little bit of a Liberty without going through it all. Well, way.
0: you know, Garrett better to do something like that to take the Liberty of like having a Sledge carry a revolver <laughs> when he was really carrying an automatic. I mean, thank God they didn't do that. You know, I'm just kidding.
1: Well, as we've Bruce said before, talk man. about a jab, <laughs> as we've said uh, multiple times on the show and it comes to those that's a joke. series. Um, sometimes it's more important to get the message across than it is the character and whose mouth you put it in. Perfect example, as we've said so many times, the whole story about the slit trench that they have uh, Gibson telling and the P-41 ward when actually it happened to, you know, um, Leckie. So sometimes it's just, there's a thought, a consensus, something that happened a lot, i.e. guys who served in World War Two, who's grandparents could have very well fought each other during the civil war. So once again, let's just get the message across. Not so important to whose mouth it came out of. I think a lot of time it comes down to.
3: Absolutely. Does the Pacific have gaps for sure? Does the overall message of what it pushed of putting the putting that part of the war back into the limelight and showing the stories of some individuals who matter? Yes. So again, we're always going to find fault at things, but I mean, I think overall more good than bad is the base layer for some of those things. No, I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek, man. Yeah, I'll, no, we know. For sure. No, I think it's hilarious, though, because, I mean, you know that. You get to call it out. He's your father. And I, I think to, to an earlier point that, that, you know, Jeff and Don were talking about, no one really, and, and this kind of spurred my mind. I was speaking with Saul uh, David yesterday. He's, he's been helping me put this book proposal together. Um, you know, using it as that academic resource for publications moving forward. You know andy's story is so disparate between different books and publications it's not all in one place comprehensive start to finish so you know if saul goes writing devil dogs if that book was available he would have a way more in-depth look at andy haldane and some of the leadership styles oh yeah like that rather than now where it's like you're pulling from so many different things and you don't really just want to re-say the same thing over and over again right so that's my goal is is to provide that and you know with those unseen letters um, that you know the family had kept on for so long, you see a very different uh, person than you know the the hard charging marine that I think we have in our mind.
0: One I'm of glad the... that that it's a marine doing the project. Yeah, you know, not not that other people couldn't do a great job, but I just I like the fact that it's 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 marine in this uh. day and age doing that project. Well, they
3: call a baby devil dog comparative to him by, you know, not even in the the same universe, happy to wear the same cloth. But, uh, you know, talk about shoes to fill for anybody, Uh, any officer. uh, And I've said this to you, Henry, second day of officer candidate school, going into the classroom, books flying, them kicking desks, people screaming. And I look up and there's a picture of Andy Haldane on the projector with a quote from your father of how he interacted with enlisted Marines. And this is the fall 2020. So he's still very relevant in today's Marine Corps. Um, Is still very important. Taught the junior officers how to interact with enlisted Marines and set the example.
1: And to Henry's point, um, I think where and it'll actually come in handy. Uh, depending on obviously, we don't know the direction and the depth of your book where it starts, where it picks up, etc. But let's just say you're trying to fill in some of the gaps on his boot camp time or his early enlistment time. There may be some. Things that you're able to fill in that's not on the paper because you, even though it's modern day equivalent, you at least went through the system and you know how to help project those feelings of maybe what he was going through at a certain phase of early enlistment, things like that. Whereas a civilian counterpart may not be able to do it in the exact same detail and uh, glamour, not really glamour, but you know, shine a light on it appropriately.
3: For sure. You know, some of the mannerisms, just Marine Corpsism, as we call them, just, you know, especially Quantico. You know, every, I think it's great that, unlike any other branch of service, every Marine officer goes through Quantico. Doesn't matter. You don't have to go to OCS. If you grab them in the Naval Academy, you don't have to go to OCS, but you still have to go to the basic school in Quantico. So it's just like kind of this base layer common denominator that we all have uh, that you can kind of pull from and say, hey, man, yeah, Quantico sucks <laughs> <laughs> at a very high level
1: when you were looking down this material that was sent your way that probably very few eyes have been set on in a, in a, in the greater picture of things, did you have that aha moment or, you know, come across that piece of letter or article or something that, okay, this is, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. This is, this is a great idea or something like, holy shit, I can't believe I'm reading this. Did you have that like moment where just like the light shined on you when you're starting this project?
3: I, yeah, two times. And one of them wasn't, what Andy had actually written it was from the father of one of his enlisted Marines uh and it was from Rockefeller Center in 1946 from a hotel um and he had excuse me in December of 1945 and he had found out that Andy had died and his son had been killed uh earlier on in the war and he wrote to Andy's mother and the letter is pretty moving um just about how much Andy meant to him to his son and how his son felt safe and that made them feel good knowing that even in the midst of this war, that their son felt safe. And unfortunately, he didn't come home. But Andy had written them a letter. And he just wanted to write to his parents and let them know that how much solace, knowing that he served and Andy brought to him. Um, and then the last letter that Andy ever written, uh, had written was about a week before he died uh, to a good friend. Uh, and that is a pretty uh, intense look at his mental psyche at that standpoint and where he was at. And it's just rather unfortunate that
0: you know, he passes away a week later. Garrett, did you get a sense from that letter that that you think maybe Andy was beginning to feel like his luck was going to run out because he had already been through Gloucester and this this was you said before Peleliu? when did what was the timeline on that when he wrote that letter you're talking about?
3: Uh he wrote that on 10 um excuse me he wrote that on 7 October. He died 5 days later. Yeah, okay. So he all right. He gets very spiritual. That's another thing. Andy stops drinking uh, in Melbourne after Guadalcanal. Um, he gives up drinking. He reverts back to the uh, Christian Monitor Science textbook, the religion that he had practiced at that point. Uh, in his final letter, I mean, I'll I'll read to you the, the, the last um, paragraph here. You know, he, he says, So it is out here, John, many of the situations that arise similar to Peter's experience, and we just know how to communicate with the Lord. His angels will bring us deliverance. I speak here of angels not as winged creatures, but as the thoughts of God's put in when he said, And when angels visit us, we do not hear the rustle of wings, none feel the feathery touch of the breast of a dove, and we know their presence by the love they create in our heart. Isn't that so? My next letter to you my next letter to you, John, will be after this blitz, so keep your thoughts uplifted for me, and we'll both get together around Xmas. I haven't reached that stage yet where material things have moved aside entirely for the spiritual. So I'm definitely looking forward to a cold beer and a chat of that chat around all that has happened in the past two and a half years. Take care, John, and keep those fingers crossed. That's very eloquent. And, uh, that's when I read that Don to your question, when I was like this, this stuff can't be sitting in a box, not seen by a wider audience. Not even, you don't have to be a Marine to appreciate that. I feel like
1: it always amazes me. Um, I'm sure anyone listening to this podcast feels the same way, because we all probably read uh, subject matter, letters, old magazines, what have you. And obviously, letter writing was the primary form of communication at that time. But you can tell a distinct de-evolution in the communication between us nowadays, even with all the technology and the ways we have to communicate, versus that letter written in 1944. I Does mean, that
0: sound like a mediocre student to you? Because it doesn't to me. No. Oh, but he he would be a grod scholar by the yes. day, Sanders. Seriously,
1: he would have every uh, college fighting to get him in their English program to maybe turn him into a uh, professor and, and put him out. And he failed English twice at Bowdoin, which is so marvelous
3: to me. because he writes such beautiful letters from the Pacific, and uh, he was a pretty prolific writing writer letter, uh, letter writer for you know what I believe as being an officer with not much time, but he did do a good job of communicating with a girl back at home i'm not going to say girlfriend uh i think he had feelings for her they you know definitely were close They we went to high school together they communicated while he was at bowdoin his entire time in the pacific uh and then to his sister and mother and his brother was in the coast guard at the time station stateside
1: now when you i'm assuming you probably took these letters and tried to read them chronologically
3: yes they were already in chron. his mother had kept them in that
1: as you read through them through his Obviously, I don't know where they let her start. I'm assuming he probably started college boot camp all the way through his time. As you're reading that timeline, can you tell how the war is affecting his, I don't want to say mental state, but his just overall well being and how he communicates in his letters? Can you see like a a obvious kind of timeline in his kind of telling, you know, his not really personality, but I guess his happiness or his? I don't know what word I'm looking for, but I'm sure you get the idea. His mindset, yeah, the
3: evolution of his mindset for sure. And I think Jeff can 100% relate to this. Anybody in the service, my, my limited time in the service, you have the the ebb and flow. Um, and I'm I imagine him being downrange. You see this upward trend. I'm in a I'm in a combat zone. I'm flying high on adrenaline. I'm riding limited. It uh, goes kind of down when it's over, but then it spikes back up. Maybe I'm going to go home. And then every single time he finds out, no, I'm not coming home. Um, and I think it really dips down the most at Pavuvu, before Peleliu. You know, he was two islands in. He's sending Marines home. He's there, possibly could go home. And he writes home to to Phyllis being like, you know, I've, it's not my time yet. The big guys think I enjoy this so much. A hmm. little do they know. But what do I have? I just carry on. Um, and then you can tell the war is waning on him. Uh, he always jokes, he goes, now, since I got a company command, I'll, I'll be old and gray by no time. And it is a, and then right before the Pacific, right before Peleliu, you know, you see him kind of dip back up again, that Marine mentality. Well, I got a job to do, so I'm going to do it really, really well. And i not going to complain.
1: It's kind of like you damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. He's a good leader. Everybody loves him. So now he's not going home. In the tale of Robert Leckie, if you're a brig rat, you went to the brig at least once or twice, you weren't eligible for the lottery. So it's like you had to, you know, as an infantryman being there, it's like you had to ride that, that ride the middle line. If you wanted to quote unquote, see any of the benefits, if there was any, but yeah, he he was so well, so good at his job. So beloved that shit, I ain't going anywhere.
3: I mean, officers are being lost of such a large clip and, you know, the yeah. take out a company commander with experience right before a campaign, like, i can I can see why the the o four o five warsman charge is probably like yeah right i mean i I'd like to have you go home, but it's not happening like, yeah you, you can't um but you know he left stateside in the middle of may nineteen forty two passed away uh twelve october forty four so you think over two years straight of of being out in the pacific um you know there's obviously there's gentlemen who have did the, did the same thing, but a you know, small minority to make it that far
1: yeah. And to have the added stress of being the guy who's sending guys out to possibly die.
2: For sure. It really makes me think of uh, how different uh, my letters were to my mom as opposed to my dad. And I think, um, you know, the draw from these letters to his mom, it seems to me that it would probably be a little difficult to actually get uh what was truly going on it and you know i just think from my personal experience you know my letters to my mom would be something like hey you know uh we just found out today sergeant so and so is a, is an arachnophobe so we're all out trying to find as many camel spiders as possible <laughs> to put in his sleeping bag or or you know something along those lines and then hey dad had another close call today um now i kind of see what you mean by being a police officer when you don't know who the enemy is, because I found very quickly in Baghdad that the bad guys didn't wear uniforms were surrounded by the public, uh, by children, by women. They were just mean mugging you on the street corner. When you went by, you got an odd feeling about them. And, um, so, you know, two separate letters completely (laughs) giving them both updates, but, um, I wouldn't dare share the things i share with my dad i wouldn't dare share with my mom to this day um so it would be interesting and i, I don't know so you say he's writing to his mom and his sister and this girl uh, so i'm curious where where, where is his father I, I don't know anything about his parents so is he not in the picture is he deceased what's the deal there
3: No, well, andy's father's there and he's a is a very strong figure in andy's life from what i gather he's a hard worker he's a, a mill worker that actually rose to the ranks during the great depression and allowed andy's family to move out of an apartment building and move into a house in 1933 which is, is you know so remarkable to even think about that they leave lawrence uh they had been in that country for 20 years to the dot uh 21 years excuse me and now they're in methuen they you know they moved away they have a car and by no means is andy wealthy but the fact that his father was hard be able to work hard enough to do that uh, and get promoted to the foreman inside the mills was spoke to his name of Cindy to Cindy's grit also uh Andy's letters are always addressed to mother mom and dad uh nothing specific to his father that I have perhaps they've been lost to war um but I do have letters to Andy's father after he had died to Bowdoin um then he writes about happy times and my only regret is that I only had one son to send to your great college um and then he donated the Japanese flag that Andy had taken from the Pacific to the college as well uh which it still had Andy's blood on it and uh it's still in the archives of the college.
0: Oh wow, uh,
3: well, yeah. Jeez. Yeah, Dick Hansen, uh, excuse me, um one of the, the enlisted Marines that Andy had trusted the flag with said if I you know, if I don't make it, bring this home. He was from Massachusetts, showed up in December of nineteen forty five, uh, with the flag and followed Andy's wishes and gave it to his parents.
0: Gary, did that flag come from Cape Gloucester?
3: Uh that or- flag I believe was from Cape Gloucester, correct. Okay and was carried with uh, Captain Haldane. I do not have an exact location where the flag was was from. Maybe it was Peleliu. I'm, I'm not sure. I just know that um, he had instructed him to give that back to his family if he didn't come back. Are there public images of that flag? Um... I, I have some. I, I've taken some in, in the archives. Um, I believe the flag must have been flying on something because up in the top left-hand corner, it's got like almost like a rubber crowning on it. That with a tie, so it feels it must have been like they'll make that corner sturdy, so it had to have been tied to something. Um, I'm not maybe a pillbox or, or a command post, I'm not sure. Uh, to my to your point, Henry, that's what would lead me to think it would be Cape Loster, probably uh, mm-hmm. that might have been, uh, you know, retreated from or they had taken because I can't imagine just a flag flying out in Peleliu in the open. Yeah,
1: so no, maybe. When you're going through his timelines of letters, um, we've heard stories, whether they're true or not, that I would imagine so that at a certain point, sometimes you just write on whatever you can get your hands on. Maybe paper's not always available. When you're looking through these letters, um, obviously they're the originals, not a PDF someone sent you. Did you come across some that were, hey, that's a, that's a K-ration box, or hey, that's, that's a pretty interesting medium to write this letter on?
3: He did write mostly on line paper. I think as an officer he probably had access to, the, to more line paper than an enlisted marine probably did. He might have said, Hey, I gotta, you know, use it for you know plotting fields of fire or putting in grid coordinates. I don't know. But he, he did have line paper or just standard paper. Um, his letters in Cape Gloss are interesting. You can see them, they're all they have watermarks on them. You can definitely tell that it was wet while he was writing uh, in the jungle, which I think is really, really cool. His writing in, while he's in Melbourne and Pervubu is obviously longer and more eloquent because he's in R&R. He's in yeah. Garrison, per se. Uh, but he did write uh, right after um, the Ridge. Uh, Walt Fridgen won the Silver Star. He rode home to his football coach. And uh, another great angle, his football coach at Bowdoin, Adam Walsh, was the center on the famous Notre Dame team with the four horsemen and Newt Rockney. Um, and he's still in the Hall of Fame at Notre Dame as the all-time center on the center for the all-time Notre Dame team, and you know a very instrumental figure in Andy's leadership style was Adam Walsh, and he wrote home. He said, "You know, I want to tell you, Coach, that that Ridge Fair really tests the metal of men, um, and it reminds me a lot of athletics. But it definitely costs a lot more to lose in this game than it does in football. But uh, you know, just a very in-depth look to Jeff's point earlier, like the different personalities you get in letters, I think you definitely get a more brave face. I'm out here doing what I need to do. When you get to the, when you start seeing from the Dean of Students into the president, which are the letters that have been public for a while now um, and were used uh, in the Pacific and some of the things that Scott had gone off of, because of course he's speaking to an audience that he doesn't want to look weak in front of, Um, but you get this much more human element to Phyllis, uh, to his sister, Janet, who was his older sister, and um, to his family, of him saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm kind of getting tired of this. Um, when I get home, we're going to paint the town red. You know, all I would like to do is just see home one more time. Uh, if I can ever make it back to and it would really make me a happy man. But um, if I could see dad in his armchair one more time, I'd be really happy. Little things like that, that, you know, you're not going to say to the dean of students who's out there talking about you and how great of a war hero you are. Yeah. And I think that's what's great about this, and that's what I'm excited. People should see that and uh, hopefully see the more well-rounded version of who he was uh, and all the different things that he had to balance.
0: Hey, Don, can I lead to, to off the back of what Garrett just said? Can I read just a really small paragraph from Devil Dogs? Absolutely. Because, I, I, Garrett, I think this ties in pretty well with what you just said. Haldane also received a message from Paul Nix and Bowden's Dean of Students, one of our undergraduates, wrote Nixon, has just brought me a picture of you and the account of Waltz Ridge in the Lawrence Daily Eagle. The picture makes you look as nice and friendly as a Baptist clergyman. (laughs) In a response to a letter, to a separate letter of congratulation from Andy Walsh, his former football coach, Haldane noted, quote, I can sincerely say your instruction and guiding ways have helped me greatly in this task I have of leading men, end quote.
3: Spot on. Uh, I think he pulled from him very much so from a leadership style um, in, in more ways than one. Adam Walsh wrote Andy's letter for his acceptance to OCS. Uh, well, one of them, you know, he said, he ended it saying, I, all I could wish is that I had a son like Andy Haldane. Um, And, you know, talk about a guy who's coached football for 30 plus years, coast to coast at some of the biggest colleges. He was at UCLA, Yale, played at Notre Dame, at Bowdoin. Um, And then he said, pound for pound, he was the hardest running back that he ever coached coast to coast. So high praise from an individual that's seen a lot of young men on and off the field.
0: And that quoting that letter, what you know what that reminds me of is in that scene in Band of Brothers when Buck Compton's lying there in the hospital, and I think Malarkey's reading the Mm -hmm. letter to him. You know, I know how much joy you bring the, the young men who are under your command or whatever. And, you know, Buck just takes a letter and he puts it, he's done. I mean, he doesn't want to be bothered at that point, but that's For just sure. kind of what comes to my mind there.
3: And would to ask you guys, I mean, obviously you guys are all very well-versed historians, especially the Pacific, the, the Pacific War and the Second World War. What do you guys think of, you know, Andy Haldane? I, I know you get the pieces from the Pacific and with the old breed, like, what is your high-level, you know, overview of him or would a project about him interest you if you didn't know me and you were just walking by the bookstore and you saw something about Andrew Haldane?
1: Absolutely. You can't
3: ask
0: me that question. I mean, you know it.
1: Yeah, I, no, absolutely.
0: Um, I'll cede to Don and Jeff. I mean... Henry, you don't count.
1: No, I I, I definitely would love... You know, I'm very, very interested because as we are saying before, you know, there's very limited... Material on him, you know, unless you try to find four or five books and and pile that all together, and the information that the Pacific brought to us. I mean, as I said before, I'm surprised they already didn't already have a book out after that production. So no, I'm I'm jumped through the hoops. I hope that your project goes forward and it turns out to be everything you want it to be for yourself and for us. Because kind of like the Spears book that came out a while back. You know, there's another character that we learned through. Um, a mass media production that had very little information and that book came out. And so I think there's definitely a thirst for it and um, I'm looking forward to it. Jeff.
2: Yeah. So um, I immediately, um, the first thing I thought of when you asked that question was, and I, and I don't know how true it was, but the very first time I saw the Pacific, the scene where uh, I guess they're back at Pavu. it's after they're it's after they're at payloo they're back in garrison and there's a marine that just dumps a bunch of stuff in a trash can and sludge goes over to it and he sees a book that belonged to haldane mm-hmm. and it's a book that i own it was, it was a hemingway book yep. and and i'm a huge hemingway fan so i immediately connected with whoever this haldane guy is i like him <laughs> and but of course i'm like well this is hollywood too like who knows um but that mixed with now getting to, you know, know Henry and, you know, um, how he talks and how his father talked about this man. And then the combination of that and just uh, guys that I've worked with both in the military and then reenacting field, they said, oh, man, if you were anybody in that series, you'd have been him, <laughs> which yeah. makes me feel pretty cool. <laughs> pretty cool. Um, <laughs> doesn't really doesn't get any better than that. They're Like, oh, man, you would have been Haldane or you would have been Spears if you were in those. And I'm like, oh, that would have been cool. Um, but now I immediately connected with this guy and I want to know more. And I can't wait. Hurry up. Because, yeah, I, I want to know more. Do it once. Do it Right. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think your audience will be a, probably a smaller niche than most. And that's unfortunate, but I've said this on this uh, show before that, thank goodness that people like Eugene Sledge had the forethought to write what they did, not only so we know what he did, but so people like Akak Haldane did not just get forgotten in that, you know, just... (laughs) those stacks of names that never get a face and never get a second look and never get people like Garrett looking at their letters 80 years later to know about who they were. No, I, I appreciate that, and I, I think it's
3: 100% true. And to your point, like, maybe the – probably, in my opinion, the best and most famous book of World War II in the Pacific at a mass level um, is dedicated to him. So you're like you like with the old brain, and you open it up, and it's you know dedicated to Andrew Akkak Haldane – who doesn't stop and immediately you're like, well, I might want to learn more about him. If this book is so great and Sledge is such speaking so highly of him, you know, that should probably follow on soon.
1: Speaking of names, when you're going through these letters that he wrote home, did any names come up that we would recognize?
3: Uh yeah, he was really close with uh Everett Pope. I don't know if you guys know that name, he won the Medal of Honor. He went to Bowdoin with Andy. Uh, he won a medal of honor at the beginning of Peleliu for his actions. Um, out by the point, but not on the point. Was it Hill
0: 120
3: or Hill 100? Uh, yeah, I think Hill 120. But don't quote me on that. I'm, I think it is Hill 120. I have it, it's my outline, but um, he writes consistently of Everett Pope because they both went at Guadalcanal and Cape Glossar together. When writing to the Dean of Students, you know, he sees heavy at one time. Um, there were seven Bowden alumni that were Marine Corps officers on Guadalcanal. Wow, wow. Yeah, they called yeah. The, Bo- the the Bowden solomon uh, Islands Group. And uh, they, you know, had their own sort of underground uh, mention of information, which was interesting. And he never wrote home specifically uh, about COs or anything. When Goose, excuse me, when, um, wow, it's escaping my name right now. Oh, when uh, Colonel Schaffner had come on board at Palulu, he did write home saying that they didn't really hit it off well. And that's kind of been a critique of Schaffner. Also, he was kind of dismissive of subordinates, great tactical leader. He had been captured at Baton, escaped captivity, and went back to America and then went back to the Pacific. Um, so, you know, he was probably a pretty black and white, no no bull crap individual, which I think we can all appreciate. But that was the only time he has sort of talked about anybody above him. He writes home about his animosity towards the army kind of uh <laughs> just, you know they're, they're both on they're both in australia together and you know his marines are they're on a hike one night and they they come across an army company and they're like have a standoff of who's going to go over the bridge first and he's like, <laughs> i thought they were gonna start shooting at each other <laughs> i was like i could just so see him being like oh my god what am i gonna do it's pitch black in australia every 19 year old kid thinks he's gonna win the win the fist fight
1: That's so
3: fantastic. um Yes, you know, some of that, he, he does write home to his sister Janet and mm. about how cool it was reading about the invasion of uh, France um, while they were on Pavuvu. And that's another thing, saying, I, I hope it's soon now, Janet. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's coming. And I can imagine him being like, please, just,
1: <laughs> I, I want to get home. In the batch of letters and information that you acquired from the family, did you get a uh, decent amount of uh, maybe un- previously unseen photos, whether it's from his childhood, his time in college, and the service? Yeah, there, there's a good amount. Uh, there's a couple of him. Uh, the one that's
3: going to be on the cover of the book, his his headshot is very widely known, but the one that's going to accompany that uh, that I want to, at least unless the publishing house says no, but I don't know why they would, uh, is him playing football, and he's kind of like leaning down, taking a knee, uh, and he looks like a, a movie star hair looks great, the sharp jawline. Um, You know, he looks like Ronald Reagan and and playing the Gip. Uh, And, you know, seeing the two sides of him. There's a couple of him while at Bowdoin. There's some with his family. Uh, There's some original letters that he had taken on Guadalcanal and writes on the back of it, outlining what's going on and sent them home to his parents. So there's probably about 20 of those um, that are pretty interesting that you said that's never been uh, seen. So there's, there's some good ones, and there's one telling one that Saul had actually put in the book, I believe. It's a picture taken of him at Pavuvu, and the stark difference of what he looked like in May of 1942 to what he looked like in July of 1945, 1944, excuse me, is pretty staggering.
1: Yeah.
3: Which, again, I, I don't think anybody can even imagine what that would do to them, so it's expected. But you can see the war is very, very much weighing on him and his eyes, his skin, his face, his hair, everything. He just looks a little bit haggard.
1: I think it was about 10 years ago, um, a photographer did a um, a show, if you will, where he took.
3: That's a good one right there, too, Henry.
0: Where I, think they, I think that's him right there.
3: I sent that to Saul. Did that's, you? That's the officer of the Guadalcanal right there. The mustache growing contest that Andy had run going on
1: and so yeah it was about 10 years ago the photographer somehow got a series of soldiers fresh out of boot camp took high definition close-up facial you know portraits of them and then two, you know after their tour in combat took the same photo mm-hmm. and you can see you know it's only been two years year and a half three years depending on what happened to them in their time and just the difference you can see them fresh out of boot camp and then them fresh out of combat, you can definitely see the wear and tear on their face in that short amount of time. And so I can only imagine, you know, seeing that of him. For sure, And I'm
3: sure Jeff. Obviously, so I mean, there's yeah. no way you didn't wear it. Uh, you know, going on a deployment, even if you aren't even in combat, you're just on a deployment. You're away from home. Your sleep pattern's messed up. You're you're in the field a lot. Like that's gonna obviously wear on you physically and mentally. Never mind the fact you're getting
2: shot at or not nothing nothing like the pacific in world war Two, though no I, I i would and then andy had a very very bad
3: case of malaria as a lot of did but it did hit him pretty hard and he fluctuated in weight 20 to 30 pounds uh in between campaigns um so i know that war on him uh you know he tried to break out of the hospital early in melbourne and got in trouble for that but he you know went back um And one of the last, I think, is one of the biggest testaments to Andy Haldane and another reason why I think this book needs to come out, and I had not known this until I had started doing research. I don't know why it's not in any books. It might be, I believe it maybe is in Devil Dogs, but after they had come home, the the vision had sailed from Peleliu back to Pavuvu. That spring, they had made a baseball field on Pavuvu, and they named it Haldane Field. And if you think about the thousand Marines that died on a little bit over it, Mm -hmm. you could have picked the Medal of Honor winners, PFCs, and sergeants that are backbone of the Marine Corps, gunnery sergeant. Like officers always try to stay out of the limelight and don't really want that show. And we don't like to put that show in front of especially the enlisted Marines. But the fact that they picked him and named the baseball field after him, I think it's just such an unbelievable testament to who he was and and how well revered he was by his fellow Marines. It's a great photo of Haldane Field being dedicated. They played taps. Uh, They had a color guard, and the the AP picked up the story um, and ended with the the enlisted had beaten the officers, and they said, Captain Haldane would have liked that too. (laughs) And uh, I think it's just a a great you know kind of touching point that a lot of men died out in the Pacific, a lot of great men. Um, And the fact that he was kind of chosen out for that as an officer uh, speaks volumes.
1: Henry, I mean, Henry or Jeff, you, either one of you have any uh, follow-up questions?
0: I I can, while well, well, Jeff's thinking of his next question, I mean, Garrett, so the mechanics of writing, do you find that you try to plug away on it a little bit every day? Or, you, you know, like for me, I mean, I get one or two nights a week you know, with a 14-year-old playing two sports and God knows everything else going on. (laughs) Sometimes I don't get to work on it as much as I would like. And uh, although here lately I've had a pretty good groove, but do you find that, like, people like our buddy Jared Frederick, you know, people like Richard Frank, people like Saul, I mean, James Holland, all these people told me just keep plugging away at it. Do you find that you're able to do a little bit every day or you're busy with life and then you you get a, a break on a weekend and you just, kind of dig in, like Adam Makos goes into the proverbial cave. You know, how is it for you, if you can share a little bit about
3: that? Yeah, the process is definitely, obviously, varies from the time constraints that you have, but yeah, I'd like to plug away on it. I started the outline on July seventeenth, two
0: 2017.
3: You know, I kept that date to remind myself of how far we've come. Uh, Now it's 89,000 words, 302 pages, and you know, I went through it with Saul um, over the weekend and I was like, hey, there is so much here. Like now it's starting time to condense that. So writing the book proposal now is is the next step. Uh, and then getting this out to, you know, hopefully some publishers to, to gain interest. There is interest from a few that we've already spoken with without even having to put this proposal together. So that is my goal of next of doing that. But yeah, to your point, I try to set off, you know, KPIs or guidelines that I want to hit um, in order in order to do that. So I have a 12 month book plan. That was my 2023 New Year's resolution. I built a 12 month book plan uh, with three to four steps for each month. Um, and I just go through and check those out to try to stay on task. With my March being the start writing the manuscript. Which should be honestly, this the detailed outline is so detailed and there's so much information there. It's really kind of just, taking those thoughts and just putting filler words kind of around it almost. All right. the outline is reading the way the story is going to be read. It's starting from his childhood, high school to the Depression, into Bowdoin, into the Pacific, and then the key piece of this that I really want to get across is the legacy that is still there 80 years later. You have a, a, an award that is given at Bowdoin every year and Andy's name still since 1947 and is still the most coveted award to win. I've had a chance to interview over 30 of those recipients and these guys are very, women are very successful business people, academics, um, uh, politicians. You have a Rhodes Scholar and a congressman who had won it, and that they still say one of the greatest honors of their life is winning the Haldane Cup. Uh, you have an award at Methuen High School that's still given every single year, uh, and the mayor and at, an athletic director are very passionate about this project and seeing its success for the town that Andy had come from. So there's still so much there around him in today's Marine Corps, the Pacific. Scott Gibson's interview for this book was great, and what it meant to him for his career. Um, so just compiling all that, I think the legacy piece is going to be important um, to make sure he just stays relevant.
2: Well, and you certainly already answered my question. So my final thought is just keep up the great work, and uh, the the legacy that Dane left will uh, it'll be an interesting uh continuation of his legacy to see uh where you take it from here i appreciate
3: guys and i appreciate the the audience uh the help the insight henry you've been fantastic obviously you have a personal connection to this but you know jeff and don for having me on and listening to me blabber for the last hour uh anybody who's listening you know feel free to reach out i'm on instagram if you have any questions uh or rfi standpoint if there's anything that you think should be added that you may know or anything like that always ears to to listen uh, and continue to make sure that this is the most well-rounded, complete assessment of a, of a great man's life, start to finish.
1: And as always, if you're listening to this on your favorite podcast app, head over to WTSP World War II. That's WTSPWWII.com, and you can find the page for this episode, and we will have links to his Instagram page as well as some photos of Garrett. But uh, before we wrap things up, we got a few more things to cover. Real quick, Henry, when you're asking Garrett about his writing styles, I had a thought that I never thought of in the year or so you've been on here. Now that you've gone down this path of writing a book, as you were saying, you have a 14-year-old. Have you ever been sitting there looking at your dad's book and saying, how the hell did him and my mom get this done while raising me and my knucklehead brother?
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Of course. Without a computer. Yeah, without a computer. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, how did I, you I sleep? On and on, and I won't. But yeah, no, you're, yes, Don. To your point, I mean, because I, I I remember what a pain in the ass I was. You know, always bitching about something, and you know, he'd go lock himself in his study and write on those yellow legal pads, and yeah, you know, I mean, it had to be. You you know, in a household with a family, you get the it's, yeah. You just want to
3: yeah quiet. <laughs>
0: real quick when the book came out henry was it like
3: you know what was it a obviously it was a great achievement for your father uh and and for the family but like was he very surprised by how much like a claim it got out of the gate
0: well the only thing that mattered to him was the marine corps and they started you know they they had already had him i think we touched on this saturday um he wrote a two article piece for marine corps gazette called defense and depth about Peleliu. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the the Marine Corps was the first to to really start noticing it. And um, but him being the kind of guy he was, yeah, I mean, he was always pretty self-deprecating and and just kind of nonplussed, you know, by by the acclaim it got. I mean, I spoke on that a little bit at the World War Two Museum, Uh, but he would get letters from veterans talking about, hey, I'm glad you told our story. I'm glad you did it. You know and he was just like man look i i just remembered what i saw and i reported that you know
3: no, it's fantastic i mean again that 18 year old kid reading it and just gonna put it down still can't still love it read it for the book and just pulling information from it it's beautifully written he does a great job encapsulating so many different things that uh i'm i'm interested to see how he could have possibly cut out 500 pages so
0: yeah well, you're, you're probably going to be one of the ones when I get to that point that I send my manuscript to and go, okay, you know, you've got some inner working knowledge of Haldane. You, you know, tell me what you think. It'd be a, hopefully, don't any plans that weekend because they're getting canceled. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's going to be a while away, Garrett, I promise.
1: Speaking of writing and putting words on paper, whether it's digital or analog, that's right. You can e- uh, email us or snail mail us. You know, people found ways to get letters to us. We want to hear from you. Email us at call at WTSPWorldWar2.com. And that leads us over to Jeff. Jeff, do you have today's letter from the mail call?
2: I do. And this one is from uh, Miss Rona Bushbaum again. Thanks for writing in again, uh, Rona. She uh, wrote us a real nice letter here just a few weeks ago. And she wrote us the other day that says, I was reviewing the digitized Auburn collection after this podcast and happened to notice a couple of photos of Eugene Sledge with a ring on his left hand. One of him in a kimono and one standing with Jay, Le- De- J- Jay DeLo. <laughs> Gosh, it looks even funnier when you see it in print, that guy's last name. Jeez. Um I'm not sure how Hollywood people make costume and prop decisions. Maybe they saw this and decided that that's what Joseph Mazzello's portrayal of Sledge should include in the Pacific. Wondering what Henry's thoughts are. Yeah, somebody, Garrett. Did we
0: talk about this Saturday morning, or Don? Did we talk about the ring thing on we,
2: we, early on the last
1: on last week's episode? We briefly spoke about the ring um, because our guest was. I oh, know Jeff was talking about through That yearbook, and the lady he knew how she yeah. brought her grandfather's ring home and it still had dirt and debris on it from combat. And so, then I asked okay. you about how in the miniseries they portrayed your father's always wearing his Marine Corps ring, and that's how we got on the it was ring a, conversation. Like, it
0: looked like a black onyx ring, yeah. or yeah. I, I do, there was a lot of discussion on that. And I'm the, the picture that Ron was referring to of him in the kimono. I, I can, I have in my mind's eye which photograph that is when he was in China. Um, what I said, Don, the other night was, I don't, that business of him wearing a ring in World War II, I don't, from what I had been told, I don't have memory of that. And I was a little bit I like, why are they making such a big deal about having him wear a ring on his left hand? Because, hell, he and my mom didn't get married until 1952, you know, so it obviously wasn't that. So, um, but Rona's referring to that. Yeah, the picture of him in China, with the, I can see that in my mind's eye. And come to think of it, he did have a ring on in that photograph. My dad never said anything to me, because I tell you, I mean, throughout my life, he never wore jewelry. He wore a wristwatch, and that was about it. He never wore a wedding ring, nothing. He Really? He wasn't big on jewelry. He wore an EGA on his hat that he wore doing yard work, but he had no jewelry, no frills. Uh, so that that's interesting.
1: And so if you want to email us, please do so at mail call at WTSP war Garrett, you kind of gave out your quick plug to your Instagram earlier, but, uh, before we wrap up the show, do you uh, want to get it out there again?
3: Yeah, just my, my, my first and, and last name Garrett Strosky on Instagram. Um, there'll be updates following that. Again, my timeline is to have this manuscript done by the end of the year. Um, and, and to go into a publishing process, I, I think there will be an appetite for it. I'm very excited to tell the story. And again, RFI out there for anybody who thinks I should miss anything or there's information that they would like to share with me. I'm all ears, always.
1: Jeff, do you have anything coming down the pike you want to plug?
2: Uh, well, are we going to, we're going to talk about what we're reading or have I skipped ahead?
1: No, we can, we can cover that. What you reading?
2: <laughs> I just love hearing you say that. So I can't wait to tell y'all because it's, I mean, it's, I guess it's somewhat relevant to to what we've been talking about. I picked up with the old breed again, nice. <laughs> Just the other night, uh, you know, I mentioned this. I think last episode I was in the middle. of Yeah, you said you were thinking about it. I was thinking about it, and you know, uh, we uh, I, I hosted author Dennis Blocker the past few nights here at the house. We had a an Iwo Jima seventy eighth anniversary program at the museum yesterday, and book talking. Uh, you know, we were talking about all the books and he's just he's over here staring at all that and all that. And and uh, I said, yeah, you know, I don't read books twice very often, uh, but but with the old breed, I think it's for me, it's like reading it for the first time again. Like I said, it's just under a whole different circumstance than I read it before. And um, I, I wanted to point something out uh, because it really it, I think it sets the tone. For the whole book, and and maybe, Henry, you'll appreciate this, but uh, on the very first page of Chapter 1, Making of a Marine, the very first sentence of this book, I enlisted in the Marine Corps on 3 December 1942 at Marion, Alabama. That is about the least inspirational sentence to start a book with. (laughs) It's the most matter-of-fact There, I mean, that to me, when I I read that sentence, I don't know how many times when I first picked the book up again, and I'm not saying that of course I'm not saying that in a bad way, but what I'm saying is that prepares the reader that this is not some it's not going to be some eloquent soliloquy of combat, and you know this is not
1: romanticized.
2: No, this is this is what I did when I did it where it happened. And I think from what I remember of this book, that first sentence is perfect to prepare the reader for exactly how Henry's father was going to write this book. That's a really good point, Jeff. I've, nobody's ever said that before. That's... um
0: that's thought provoking. Uh,
2: yeah, I, I just I was stuck on that one sentence. <laughs> uh, also, behind me, I know you guys have been have been eyeing the cover of this Life magazine up. And for for those of us on just listening, uh, you're just you're just missing out. I'm not even going to describe <laughs> the cover of this Life magazine. But what I will tell you, this was uh, a, a newly acquired. This was a gift to me from uh, yesterday. Actually, it was given to me from. Uh, one of our newest volunteers at the museum who had a Bundles for Britain exhibit also as part of a temporary thing for our um, uh, Iwo Jima program yesterday. And so she bought this for me. And the date is March twenty sixth, 1945. Now, some of the historians listening know that that's the day that uh, Nimitz said, oh, Iwo Jima is all of a sudden secure. That's just the date that they agreed on. Um, so that's the date of this issue. And if you open it up... There is that famous flag raising, and it's the picture of, um, you know, of course, the Marines raising the flag on top of Suribachi on 23 February 1945, which is 30 days before this issue came out. Um, I'm not sure Life Magazine had any idea how big that image was going to become for America, for the United States Marine Corps, for guys like Garrett. uh look back and refer to many many times and what this meant in hollywood for the country for the history of the marine corps going forward to today to 2023 this is a very relevant image and to look back in history of all the life magazines i have guys this one to me really stood out in really a time capsule uh back in time that's awesome Super, super cool.
1: Henry, what you yes, reading?
0: i uh, got about 100 pages left in Hang Tough by Jared Frederick.
1: That's your so, first I'm, time through on that one, right?
0: It, it is my first time through. And, uh, you know, really, really cool being able to call Jared a buddy and having had him. And that was not the first time he'd been on the show. It was the first time I'd met him. The first time he'd been on since I've been co-hosting mm-hmm. with you guys. But... Yeah, it's, I'm enjoying that, man. I mean, it's, As I was thinking about it earlier today. It, it's, I, as interested as I am, as much as I love the Band of Brothers and the whole Dick Winters and all of it, mm-hmm. reading a book of his letters would not have been my first choice, okay? And that's not out of any lack of interest or respect for Dick Winters, but, uh, you know, because letters are just such a personal thing. They're meant for one person, and, and you know, but we've talked about it before, and I won't belabor the point. Just Jared... Using his narrative, Jared and Eric Doerr, I don't mean to exclude him, using their voice as that interstitial tissue, if you will, to kind of keep it all hanging together. It's very interesting to me for obvious reasons. Well,
1: and plus, as we've said before, because there's so many books about Dick Winters out there, most of it covers pretty much the same ground with a little bit of, a little bit of difference here and there. The subject matter in which they pulled from, i.e. the letters, it just... As we were saying like last week the week before, it just gives you a more in-depth, well-rounded view of him as a person and as a leader opposed right. to just as a historical figure. Yeah. I'm still uh, – I'm almost done with The Longest Day. Um, I, I kind of mentioned this a while back, but I, I don't want to like upset anybody, but this book is so damn good. <laughs> and I'm a late – I'm a late viewer of the movie. I saw the movie for the first time like three years ago. <clears throat> You, you hear the saying all the time, though the book is so much better than the movie. I don't even know how the two are related, other than the fact that they share names and they have the same subject matter. This book is is I'm <laughs> it's such a great both book. long. Yeah, well, well actually, it's, it's not that long of a book, but it's just it's so damn good and in the information that's in here. Hold um, it up, Don. We look
0: at that cover. This is the that's...
1: 1966 um, cover. So it's, okay, okay, Hold it's on got one. like yeah. a, a watercolor, almost a borderline. You know, it's. Green, blue, orange, and red. That's all the colors that are made up on it. And it's um, yeah. it's just the proverbial upside-down M1 helmet on the on the shores. But it's such a damn... And it's promoting the movie on the back. So, the Longest Day, now a Daryl F. Zunwick production, the greatest international all-star cast have ever assembled in a single motion picture. And then it literally has everybody and their grandmother who's in the movie. But, you know, if you're like me and you saw the movie not too long ago, you're like, eh, it's good, but it's not great. Read the damn book. It's definitely... It's... Just, it's a fantastic book, but, uh, Hey Garrett, what you reading?
3: <laughs> I am reading, uh, stick in the world war II, but in the, in Europe, uh, it's called Goring's man in Paris. Okay. Uh, and it's about the, uh, German officer who was a uh, doctor before the war, uh, a doctor of the arts. and uh, he was a young gentleman, the earnest doctor, but he was in charge of acquiring Goring's artworks while in Paris from, uh, the Jewish collections that were stolen uh, from the museums that were raided uh, and then more importantly uh, bartering with uh, people in Switzerland who were obviously looking to buy some of the greatest artwork in the world at a very reduced price yeah uh, fire sale very, he, um the 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 nazi the dr Loesch, who was about actually didn't die until 2007 so was he, he the
1: pretty, he yeah. wasn't the guy that was found with the apartment packed full of all the art was he Yes. That was him. I remember that yeah. story because I worked in radio back then. And I remember yep. the photos I, like on, everyone. are you guys familiar with that story?
0: His I'm, I'm going to say no.
1: So after all these years in 2007, they tracked him down and he literally was living like in a two bedroom apartment, just packed wall to wall with all this stolen art. All this time, he must have out storage at some point and just put it in his apartment and was just held up in there with his art. For sure. Uh,
3: and and Gerl- Hildenbrand in 2012, too. And he was a uh, direct dealer for, for Hitler. Um, you know, just a very unique aspect of the war. We think about the, you know, the, the blood and guts piece of it a lot. But this, what the Nazis had done from a, you know, a culture standpoint or culture robbing standpoint, yeah. pretty remarkable.
1: Absolutely. And uh, Henry, do you got anything coming down the line that you need to promote?
0: Uh no, nothing that jumps out at me right now. Uh, I will say we got a, a letter right around the same time that the whole Library of Congress thing started brewing up. I think at Auburn, they wanted to display my dad's dress blues in the Student Union mm-hmm. Building where they have the Veteran Resource Center. Did I mention that? Yeah, I did, I'm sorry to it. repeat that. No, no worries. Um, but yeah, for now, man, that's all I'm going to...
1: And by the way, we, we did put up a video of you discussing because that kind of came at the end of the show out of nowhere. And um, if you guys haven't seen that or if you have... Um, we kind of asked the question, what would you do? And so um, if you have any thoughts, suggestions on, uh, you know, if you're a Henry in that position, would you easily give up the, well, I don't want to say give up the Bible, but make it available where it's no longer in your possession, or would you hold on to it a little longer? So uh, if you have any answers to that question, email us once again at mail call at WTSPWorldWar2.com. And I think that's going to do it for this episode. We want to thank each and every one of you for your continued support and for all those who, who went over to wtspworldwar2.com or d-410.com. You signed up for Patreon. Thank you so much. It goes a long way to support what we do here over at the show. And if you haven't done so, please head over to YouTube, look up Digital 410, or just search for the podcast name. Subscribe and watch our content, and you can join in on the conversation. We live stream every Monday, and we have a chat channel here, and you can come and ask questions, and we will bring it up on the air. But uh, for myself... Jeff, Henry, and Garrett, we want to say thank you guys, and we will talk to everybody next week. This has been a Digital 410 production.